I'm not sure who put this tent up here, but um, the first words I got was, uh, well, um, I think people were afraid my hair was getting blown by the wind, so that's why they did that. We're glad you're here. What a special day to have communion. Uh, I tried to look back on my calendar, but I think it was early February. It was the last time we were able to come before to, to gather around the Lord's table, as we plan to do in, in just, a few, uh, just a few moments. Uh, you've got the text printed in your, your worship folder from Matthew 5, uh, and it's the beginning of the, the Sermon on the Mount. We want to bring some messages uh, through July on the Beatitudes, on the, on the opening few verses of the Sermon on the Mount. But hear God's word. I'll read through all the Beatitudes, more than what you've got printed there. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So ends the reading of God's holy word. Imagine living uh, at a time and in a place, in a culture, where your every action was watched and evaluated. Where every word that you spoke was evaluated as to whether it was uh, acceptable based on what was the prominent ideas of the time. And if it wasn't, you were judged deficient and you were cast out or cast aside. I'd call that a culture of legalism, a legalism where outward conformity to external rules was all that mattered. Can you imagine, can you imagine such a culture, even though the culture itself may view everything else as relative? Not what you say. That is absolute. If you can't imagine such in your wildest dreams, then you can understand the culture into which Jesus spoke these words in this sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. Last week, Elliot preached on verse 4. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. That's the second beatitude, second of seven these seven descriptions at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. The main theme of the Sermon on the Mount is what does it mean to be right with God? What is real righteousness in God's sight? And the key verse is in chapter 5, verse 20, where Jesus said, I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, the, those of whom Jesus spoke, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, their religion was totally external. Uh, law upon law upon law upon law. It had nothing to do with the heart. 
And so when Jesus said your righteousness must surpass them, for the person who thought it can't surpass them, I can't do any more than I do now. That's not what Jesus was speaking of. He was saying there's a righteousness that begins right here that the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were not teaching in that legalistic culture. So let's back up and look at the first, the first beatitude as we look at several of these this summer. Verse 1 sets the stage for us. There's a crowd of people, and Jesus sees them, and he goes up on the mountain. And then it says his disciples came to him. It would appear, if you just read that one verse, it would appear that there's a crowd, Jesus sees them, he goes up by himself, and then the 12 disciples come to be with him, and he's only speaking this sermon to those 12. But we know from the last verses, after Jesus finishes the sermon, it says the crowds were amazed at his teaching. So the picture seems to be that the, Jesus is, is up higher, the disciples are closest to him, and then the crowds gather behind them where they can still hear. And he begins with seven what we call beatitudes. You may say, why are they called that? Well, it's from a a Latin word, beatus, which means blessed. Because each statement begins with this word blessed or blessed. This word means happy. And it's not a meaning like when you have a fleeting moment of happiness, like they bring you a a meal to your outside. to your car and you you say oh I'm happy that it's exactly what I wanted now this is a deep abiding joy happiness that's not dependent on circumstances can you imagine that even through the darkest times of life there's a there's an inner joy that is sustained even in in those dark times that's what Jesus is describing He's describing that when he uses the word blessed. And the first beatitude we read a moment ago, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. When you hear the word poor, what do you think of? Do you think money? You think of a a person who may be destitute? Or the, the poor part of town where people who all are destitute live? That's probably what I think of first when I hear the word poor, but that we may speak of a poor performance, that uh, you, you did not live up to what you should do. More than once, as an elementary and junior high student, I got back, <laughs> I got back an assignment from a teacher and all it said was poor. <laughs> she didn't mean I didn't have money. She meant what I had done was not uh, acceptable. Uh, it did not reflect how much I knew. Sometimes we get those two confused, money and poor. You maybe have heard about the preacher who went to buy a car. He went to the car lot and he said, I'm interested in this car. How much does it cost? And the salesman said, well, it's uh, it's this amount of money. He said, oh, I can't afford that. I'm I'm just a poor preacher. And the man said, yeah, I know. I've heard you. But what does it mean here? Elliot referred to it at the beginning uh, before we did our, our opening call to worship. It's emptiness. It's spiritual poverty. The Bible invites the poor or the empty to come. You can be rich financially. You can perform well with whatever your task is before you and still be poor because you are spiritually 
empty. When the psalmist said, this poor man cried out to God, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. We don't think that writer was poor financially. We don't think it was a poor performance. The writer was saying, this empty man, this man who needed God to fill the space in my life, cried out to God and he heard me and he saved me out of all my troubles. When Isaiah prophesied and Jesus fulfilled it, said the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. Did that include those who were destitute? Yes, but it also included the rich and tax collectors and, and uh, political leaders and, and others. He was saying they are poor too because they are spiritually empty. So to be poor in spirit, here is this beatitude. To be poor in spirit is to recognize your spiritual poverty before God. To recognize that that you and I are sinners under the wrath of God and deserving nothing but the judgment of God. We have nothing to offer, nothing for which to buy the favor of heaven. Augustus Toplady in his hymn, Rock of Ages, probably put it as well of any words that are not in the Bible when he said, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Naked, come to thee for dress, helpless, look to thee for grace. Foul, I to the fountain fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. Those are the words of the poor in spirit. We do not belong anywhere except alongside the tax collector who went up to the temple to pray and could only say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Now, it's important when Jesus is describing this person, the one who's poor in spirit, he's not talking about uh, people to people. He's not talking about how you are as you relate to others. He's talking about how you relate to God. You need to be confident in what you do. You need to be bold for the truth. Uh, we need to know who we are and what God has called us to do. When he's talking about poor in spirit, it's talking about when I go before God, I have nothing to bring. It is all of grace. So it's an, a complete absence of pride. It's a complete absence of self-assurance and self-confidence before the Lord. To recognize I am nothing before God. You are nothing before God as you stand before him. You cannot come up with something to impress him. It's awareness that our, our, our nothingness is all that there is as we are face to face with God. We can't rely on our, our birth or our family birth or our nationality. We can't rely on wealth or accomplishments or where you were educated or how you were educated or whatever you think has value. We come before him in complete submission, only on his grace. We have to be poor in spirit. Are you like that? Am I like that? How do I see myself in the presence of God? How do you see yourself in the presence of God? And here's a good indicator. What do you pray about? And how do you pray? What do you think with regard to yourself before God? Well, there's a promise here. For theirs is the kingdom of God. What is the kingdom of God? 
That's a confusing concept, then and now. In Jesus' day, was he speaking about heaven? Or the new heavens and the new earth? Some thought it was a political kingdom, the overthrow of the Roman Empire, to break the back of Rome so that the Jews could be free in their land to do what they wanted to do. The kingdom of God, we know, was the focus of Jesus' preaching. I pulled out an old concordance. You know, they make those in print. And it was just list after list, hundreds of verses, I think, that mentioned the kingdom of God. When Jesus came preaching, it said that, and he went through all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. He taught us to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. And Jesus, though, when he spoke to his disciples, he said, the kingdom of God is in your midst. What he meant was that the kingdom of God is wherever God rules. If he's ruling in your heart, the kingdom of God is there. So in this verse, he's not talking about the future of heaven after this life. There's application there too, but in this, in this beatitude, he's saying that blessed are happy are those who are poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God now. Now, that's an indicator that you are part of that kingdom, that you are in the kingdom, because God reigns in your heart. So what is the mark or identification of being in the kingdom of God? Today we have all sorts of ways to identify people. We have retina scans. We have facial recognition software. We have DNA testing that can even recognize uh, people who have been dead for a long, long time. But what way can we identify a person who is part of the kingdom of God? How can we identify someone who is truly have righteousness before God that's a true believer. You know how? Poor in spirit. They're poor in spirit in how they see themselves, him or herself, before God. The true condition of receiving the kingdom of God is to acknowledge your spiritual poverty. So how does a person become poor in spirit? If you say, well, okay, I understand that, and I I think this is on target chip of what the passage is saying, I, I, I see this. I'm not really that way. How does it happen? Well, you might think, well, I need to look within myself. And I need to start listing all my sins every day and just, and just ruminate on all my failures and, and how I miss the mark, God's mark of righteousness. No, there's a time and place for that, but that, that'll just make you self-absorbed if that's all you do. That'll just put your attention on yourself, and that'll produce pride. Well, you may say, well, how about if I look at others? And I compare myself to people that are better. Well, the problem is our sinful hearts don't find people who are better. (laughs) They always find people that we can compare ourselves to. And in our own eyes say, well, you know, at least I'm not in that same boat with that guy. Well, so the answer is we don't look to ourselves. We don't look to others. We look to God. We look to God. You read this book. you, You read his law that expresses his moral character. We look at his expectations, we study his attributes, we reflect and meditate on on such passages as Genesis 1 to 3, Psalm 103, Psalm 145, Isaiah 40, the book of Job. And we contemplate standing before him as we read through like those Psalms like 103 I was doing yesterday and 
and where it lists the mercies of God and the grace that we receive and we compare ourselves, we see this is what God is really like. I believe it was last week uh, uh, in, in the sermon that, that Elliot, I believe, referred to Isaiah. There was Isaiah. A national crisis took place. The, the king, a good king, King Uzziah, died. It threw the whole nation into chaos of some degree, uncertainty, I should say. And, and what does he say? He has a vision from God, and his response to when he sees these cherubim and seraphim and, and these winged creatures and so forth flying around God on the throne, his response is, woe is me. Woe is me. What is that? That is being poor in spirit. Woe is me. I am undone. I am a man of unclean lips. In other words, I'm a sinner. And I live among sinners, he said. So that's how it happens. As we look at God, then we see ourselves as we really are. Let me give you one example. It may seem trite, but I've, I've never forgotten it. Years ago, uh, I watched a movie called The Bear. The Bear was a movie made about 35 years ago based on a novel that was an American novel uh, written in 1916. And the novel's entitled The Grizzly King. And the movie was noteworthy and won all sorts of uh, international awards. One reason is there's almost no speaking in the entire movie, and there's very little music. And it revolves around two hunters uh, in the year 1865 in, in uh, British Columbia. And they're bear hunters. They, they hunt trophy bear. They're like bounty hunters. They're not hunting for meat. And these two hunters are on the trail, you might say, of a very large bear in these mountains. And they're very confident in their own ability. They're very confident in their, their guns, their rifles. And there's a cockiness, there's an arrogance that's about them. Well, there's a lot more to the movie, but what I remember most is there's a scene toward the end when these very proud hunters uh, get separated. They are on the trail of this bear and one of them comes to a waterfall and he decides he's thirsty and he decides to get some water so he sets his rifle aside and he goes over to get some water and he can't hear because of the water coming down and this bear is coming up right behind him. And when he turns back around and his rifle's still a good way off, the bear raises up on its hind legs and it, from nine feet over him just lets out this continuous, ferocious roar. I mean, he's up close for the first time with this bear and the hunter, the hunter balls up, covers his head, and he's on his knees there just trembling, knowing that any second he's going to die. Well, the bear just continues his ferocious roar and then to his surprise, the hunter's surprise, it drops down to all four and it walks away. It spares his life. The man gets up off his knees and he's changed. He goes back to the hunter hunter and said, we're finished. We're not going to keep hunting. The arrogance is gone. The pride is gone. He's been humbled. Now, in a, not in a poor in spirit kind of way, but what brought that about? What brought that about was seeing what he was hunting up close and the power and the majesty as we look to God as we see him. And we really are. We are a people who do not know God. We are a generation who do not know God. Think about it. If you don't go out and look for this information, who's going to teach you? Hopefully your family. Hopefully the church. Maybe some Bible class at school, perhaps. 
uh, but you're not going to get it anywhere else. We get to know God. C.S. Lewis, in closing, C.S. Lewis said, whenever we find that our religious life is making us feel that we are good, above all, that we are better than someone else, I think we may be sure that we are being acted on, not by God, but by the devil. The real test of being in the presence of God is that you either forget about yourself altogether or you see yourself as a small object. It is better to forget about yourself altogether. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you that you accept us because of the righteousness of Christ, of what he did, and not anything that we can bring. And now as we come to your table, we ask for your presence as we prepare. Prepare our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.